Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ben Christensen, CEO of Cambium Carbon, a circular economy startup that's raised five and a half million funding. Ben, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much. Yeah, excited to be here. No problem. So let's start off with a, a quick summary of who you are and just a bit more about your background. Yeah. So we're a company that's focused on addressing climate change in a really big way that also rewrites some of the inequalities in our world. So focused on people-first climate solutions, we do that by making it really easy for large national material buyers. Think people in the built environment or large product companies to source materials locally and to use waste-to-value materials, um, helping to keep waste out of our waste streams, and then also really connecting local economies and local jobs back into the new green economy. We do that first with wood. So we make it really easy for folks like Patagonia, National Geographic, Microsoft, Room and Board to source locally. And then we help local processors use waste wood instead of cutting down virgin trees. That's what we do. Sort of my background, uh, I was born and raised in New Mexico, really grew up in forestry and in wood products, spent a ton of time in the shop with my dad, and also have been really focused on addressing climate change for my whole life. Went through a number of different iterations of that. Never really thought that the two would come together, but they have and really excited about what we're building and have so many great folks around me who have helped us get to where we are. I saw on your LinkedIn that you're working to achieve global carbon negativity by 2060. Do you think that's realistic? Are we on track? We are not on track. I would not say that. Um, I would say that one of the biggest things that I believe is that you don't solve impossible problems without believing in them. And I think as soon as you stop thinking about, okay, what would need to be true in order for us to solve a problem, you stop solving it. Um, and so I'm a huge believer in pushing that. I also think that's what our world needs to stay in, you know, 1.5, you know, warming scenario that's going to be less catastrophic. And so that's been my life's work. I've had that date and number in mind for a long time. Obviously, a lot of other people have a similar thought. So I think there's a lot that we can do. I think it's realistic in the sense of there are real solutions that are not crazy for us to do um, to get there. Are we on track? Definitely not. And a few other questions that I like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand, you know, what makes you tick and, and what inspires you. So first one, what founder and CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I would say one of my favorite founders, and I'll say this, which is maybe, I don't know, a different example, but one of my favorite founders is Phoebe Yao. She runs a company called Pareto. One of the things that she does that is really, really incredible is a consistent sense of directness that I think is really, really pervasive, but it's a sense of directness that is also coupled with like a really high emotional availability for her team. And that's something that I'm always trying to strive for is how do you balance both of those? You know, they're still a fairly young company growing really well, but something that she just does very, very consistently is deliver direct feedback and couple that, um, you know, with a really effective sort of understanding of the emotional topography of her team. I've seen her do that in many different cases. And yeah, something I'm, I really look up to. Is that like the radical candor approach or what is that? Like, how would you summarize the approach? 
I mean, I think there's this great, you know, I think lots of folks have thought about these different things, but it's the idea of trying to be more direct about what a culture of excellence actually means. And I think that doing that, I mean, it's it's not not a crazy idea for founders. I think these are things that we think about all the time, as you know, but correctly identifying a problem, quickly engaging and being direct in that problem, but also being savvy enough emotionally to make sure that that you know, what you're putting forward is heard and understood and actually bought in on. There's a ton of different approaches to that. Radical candor is, is part of it. But I think that's sort of like a holistic coverage of, across those three points. And what about books for you? How I like to frame this, and I stole this from Ryan Holiday, uh, he calls them quake books. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core and, and really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind for you? You know, I'll say one which completely changed my approach to life and then also to to startups is Deep Survival, which is sort of about the neuroscience of why certain people survive and why others don't in backcountry scenarios. I spent a ton of time outside. We were talking about Ultra Marathon before, you know, jumping in here. But one of the biggest things that Lawrence Gonzalez, the author, talks about is how do you correctly build mental maps and how do you have a fluid mental map that actually adapts to situations that you are dealing with, you know, low resources, high constraint, high stress environment, which is building a startup. And a ton of the sort of insights that he has from neuropsychology on how people actually survive in these tense outdoor situations, I find also really applies into startup scenarios. A good example of that is he talks about the power of humor in high conflict scenarios and in high stress scenarios and how there's actual data and science on how that changes your approach to those problems and improves your ability to engage with them. I think that, um, you know, that's one example of something we try to employ in high conflict scenarios and turning those into low stakes uh, components. And as we were talking about there in the the pre-interview, tomorrow's a big day for you doing a hundred miler up there in Canada. What has ultra running done for you and how has ultra running you know, shaped you as a person? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I find that the pursuit of understanding yourself that comes from, you know, that type of distance. I mean, you know this, we're, you've got a, a 50 lined up, you've, you've spent the time in, in the pain cave that comes when you're, you're in an event like that. I think you learn about what you are really capable of. You also learn perspective. And I think one of the biggest things that I'm always trying to do and I am trying to fight vehemently against is I see so many founders who raise a lot of money, get caught a bit in the hype train and just get soft and soft in their emotional resilience, soft in their ability to give to other people, soft in their focus, soft in their drive, soft in their commitment. And I find that ultra running is a way that I stay really disciplined because a big part of it is there's race day, which is a lot about learning about what you're capable of when things are really, really hard. But a lot of it is about creating execution and focus and discipline in the six months leading up to race day, right? You eat better, you sleep better, you're more focused, you have to use your time more effectively within your company because you have to get your training in. And I find that that builds to a much more full life. And so it's it's been really transformational for me to have that, uh, you know, within my sort of yearly cadence. Yeah, it's very surprising to me, or I guess not that surprising, but how many founders come on the show and they're either ultra runners or they're doing Ironmans. 
it seems like a lot of founders have, you know, something where it really challenges them, puts them in the pain cave, and they have to, you know, work their way through it, which I think is just very interesting. And it's, you know, cool to see this pattern with a lot of the founders I speak to. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be a correlation there, right? There's something that is inherent, I think, about entrepreneurship that is tied into seeking and trying to understand can I and can we as a group collectively create something that is new and is at the boundary. And that's ultimately what ultra running or doing Ironmans or these things is. It's the same sort of like explorer spirit of seeking, you know, can I actually do something as audacious as running a hundred miles or as doing an Ironman? And then I think the other thing that I love about founders in that space is that they know that it's, you don't just do it. You have to build to doing it. And there's so much process, there's so much support, you need the team, you need the people in your life who are going to get you there. And I think that is, I don't know, it's an amazing thing to be around that community. So it doesn't surprise me that that's, that's who you get a lot of. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a little bit deeper into the company. So I know we touched on it there a little bit at the start, but I'd love to go back to that origin story. So I saw on LinkedIn, I think it was December 2019. Take me back to December 2019. What was going on? What were those early conversations like? And how did you decide this was the problem that you wanted to pursue and this was the product that you were going to build? Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, I've been focused on addressing climate change for my whole life. I think something I think about a lot there is what can I do, you know, as an individual with a unique background and unique skill set that is going to make the most marginal impact because we really need everybody on such a big problem. I was working working on federal carbon policy. I was feeling a ton of excitement in the sense of understanding new solutions that we had to addressing climate change. And in 2018, 2019, carbon removal was getting more, uh, more and more thought about, but was still way under the radar compared to where it is today. Carbon removal is, you know, actively taking carbon out of the atmosphere versus just limiting the amount of carbon we put into the air. And so what I really realized was that, you know, there's all of these different solutions. There's a big opportunity in forestry, but there's this gap and there's so much focus. And this is something I really would love to see across the climate tech space, but there's a lot of effort into enabling solutions and a gap in actual solutions. And so what I was seeing there is there's a lot of new finance coming into the space that is trying to take carbon out of the atmosphere. There's a lot of new platforms that are trying to create the market conditions. You know, think about carbon offset trading and the marketplaces that go underneath that to create that. There's a lot of work going into data platforms that create those pieces, but there was a real gap in actual solutions, you know, solutions that were going to actively be dealing with atoms and not just bits. And so within that, I wanted to really be part of the sort of project development solution that was, you know, actively addressing the problem, discovered a really overlooked problem in urban wood waste. You know, it's a problem that sort of smacked me in the face that I could not believe was as big as it is, but it's 46 million tons a year in the US. There's more wood, you know, that comes down in our cities every year that's salvageable than our national forests. It's a crazy, crazy volume of wood that we pay over a billion dollars a year as a country to get rid of. And we could be harnessing somewhere around $50 billion in value if we captured all that material. 
And then if you scale that out, then you look globally, you know, it's, it's a gigaton solution, just keeping carbon and wood instead of letting it, you know, be spread out and off gassed. And so there's a really, really big opportunity felt really lucky to stumble in on it. Felt like I also had a, a deep understanding of the wood and forestry space. And yeah, you know, I started in 2019 and I think one of the other things that I would say just from a, a personal perspective is my whole life, I had struggled to fully commit to things. I was one of those people who had a good idea, did fairly well in school, but never did something all the way through. And so I was in therapy for the first time in grad school, had a great experience. And I was really understanding that about myself and recognized I want to actually commit to something and commit to something until, you know, you have to like truly pull it, pull it out of my hands. And that was the other impetus. And I think that really served me, um, you know, going back to 2019, there were so many moments. I mean, every founder knows this, but there's so many moments when there are easy walk away points, especially in the early days when you know, it's very clear that people don't believe in your idea and you haven't created the traction enough to build conviction there that it's very easy to walk away. And so that was also a really big part of my starting journey. Do you have any examples of like stories that were just really painful in the early days or near death experiences or just any examples of when it you know got close to you just walking away? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a big, a big moment for me was I had initially initially pitched it to a boss and I got some initial support for it, came back to grad school. So I sort of started working on this in the my summer internship in between years in grad school, came back and I had, I had gotten funding so that I could actually fund independent study work for, you know, other students to join me. And what happened was I felt really confident. I had like a great sponsorship, had an interesting idea could actually pay people to work on an independent study. It was it's like the lowest risk, you know, opportunity ever to to join and start something. And I brought in, you know, about 10 of my closest friends and folks who I thought would be in on the idea, pitched it to them, and they all ended up saying no and walking out of that. And that was a moment where, yeah, I felt totally demoralized. I mean, I think another part of my journey in this is I'd gone to grad school and I went straight in from undergrad as the youngest one in my program and, you know, felt fairly consistently like I couldn't get my foot in the door. I had applied to all these jobs in grad school, didn't get any of the jobs. That was part of the reason I was like trying to figure out something for myself. And so that was just another level of kind of driving, you know, which is something that we all feel in our own ways, but driving the imposter syndrome, driving the not good enough home and yeah, it was a really dark and hard time. I think the the turnaround moment for me was I then called my best friend from growing up who was just getting back from a fellowship and said, hey, I got this thing. What do you think about coming to work on it? Some? And he was like, yep, sure. <laughs> Didn't hesitate. And I think that was a, a transformational moment of, you know, you get somebody who is willing to take an early bet on you, especially after a lot of other people aren't, that moves you forward. So. That was a, a pretty near-death experience for sure. Yeah. Those are the things that founders like to hear about. Not all of, you know, like the, the funding news and the cool, exciting oh. projects. They want to hear the, the real stories and the, the painful stories because it's a painful journey and every founder, you know, goes through something similar, I think. There's been very few founders I've had on the show who are being honest and, and say it's just been, you know, great. <laughs> yeah, I think it's totally right. And I think something that I've realized as I've gotten deeper into this journey is that 
especially early days and especially in your first company. I mean, I assume I haven't started a second company yet, so I guess we'll see if it's different. But I think you lack perspective on how many options you actually have when you are faced with something that feels like an existential challenge. Like usually there's a hundred other things you could do to try to solve that problem. And even though maybe the first two things that you've done have come out really poorly, so many more options than that. Maintaining that perspective and not being quite as emotionally focused or attached to the immediacy of the moment is something that, you know, you can't know when you start out because those moments, as you're saying, feel so difficult. But then if you zoom out on them a little bit, I think you can understand that, that you'll get there as long as you do all of the enabling components. Yep. Totally agree. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, something I want to go back to just to make sure I'm clear on like the definition. Can you dive a bit deeper into urban wood waste. Can you just explain that? Maybe I'm slow. It's a Friday, but I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding what that is exactly. No, it's a great question. The core of it is the US, our world has a lot of trees and a lot of those trees exist in managed scenarios, right? Where an agency, you know, our government takes care of them. A forestry company, you know, manages those forests. A landowner manages those forests. But there's also a ton of forest land that is unmanaged or it's not managed to be harvested. And you can think about that as, you know, primarily wood from cities and the surrounding areas. So think like suburbs and sort of peri-urban areas. Think around rivers, you know, riparian corridors, sort of the, the wood that is around utility lines. There's a massive amount of wood and that is not actively managed. And what happens is that wood, you know, for a number of reasons, ends up coming down. And so those reasons really include death, you know, old age. Trees are living things. When they reach a certain age, they die. There's also, you know, a good bit of disease. So a good example is, you know, emerald ash borer is a disease that has been, well, it's a, it's a pest um, that has spread across the country. And it's really led to tons and tons and tons of trees coming down. We also, you know, see trees coming down because of new development. So as our cities expand, when we build new, you know, parks and communities, we take down the trees that are there. And right now, across all those scenarios, you know, we see that wood primarily getting wasted. And so, you know, another good example of that is disasters. You know, when you think about a hurricane coming through or tornadoes or, you know, extreme flooding, often that results in tons, literally tons of wood waste coming down. That's the wood that we're talking about. Um, so, you know, I would, I would encourage, um, you know, just as you're walking around and, you know, to any listeners out there, next time you see a tree coming down or see an arborist company, notice what's happening to it. Most likely they're mulching it, which is cutting it into small pieces, which we then spread out and off gases. And there's certain times when mulching makes sense, but in lots of cases, we're, we're really underutilizing a resource that could be used for much higher value. Hmm. Super interesting. 
Now I feel like I'm going to see just trees falling down everywhere I go and I walk around. Well, I know it's one of those things. It's sort of like now that you've heard it, you can't not notice it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Now, I know you mentioned some really exciting companies there and on your website, I see them listed. Is there maybe one case study that you want to pick and just talk us through to help visualize you know, what the, the product is and what that end product is that you deliver to customers? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think a great example that I'll highlight is room and board. And so a great example, you know, really large, amazing furniture company. They do tons of great work across the country. They do a lot of domestic manufacturing. So really trying to build locally. What we help them do is instead of sourcing material from a managed forest where you're actually cutting down a tree and then, you know, you're logging it, you're moving into a sawmill and then you're shipping it often really, really far. What we help them do is access a local you know, waste to value products. So one of those trees that was already coming down at scale and then, you know, connecting that into their supply chains. So a good example is, you know, we have our first product launching with them in August where we are sourcing wood, you know, all local, all reclaimed, all verified and backed through our technology. So you can actually see, you know, how every board moved through the system and we're able to tell that story really clearly to them um, and as well as to their customers. And that's the thing that gets me really excited is, you know, one of the biggest challenges within sustainability always is clarity and transparency. And what we really help companies like Room and Board do is both access a new value chain that's much more sustainable and creates local jobs, but also you don't need certification in the same way with it because you need a certifier when you have a third party coming in because you don't actually know what's happening in the supply chain. For us, we're able to help them see with total transparency each step of the process down to every single board that moves through, you know, their manufacturing. And so that that completely changes the ability to track and visualize and communicate around, you know, those products. Hmm. Super fascinating. Something else that I that I watched last night was your your TED talk, and it was, it was really engaging and, and a really well delivered talk. The question there, I guess, is more on like the business side. But how did you secure the opportunity to do the TEDx talk? And have you seen any business outcomes come from that? Because that's something I see a lot of founders talk about. Is doing a TED talk is kind of like this ultimate thought leadership moment, and and everyone wants to do one. So, what was that experience like for you, and what was the business impact? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of those things where Thought leadership is always something that's hard to measure and something that I'm always trying to get better on. Um, you know, I, I think it's good that I rewatch my TED Talk and I think, man, I think there's a lot that I would improve and, you know, update today. Um, so hopefully that's a, a sign of growth. I think on the, the actual business and sort of mechanics of it, I just was really fortunate um, from a network perspective to have somebody who invited me to that, you know, who had seen me speak and was excited about you know, opening it up for the event that they were putting on with TEDx. From a sort of business mechanic perspective, I would say yes for for other founders. Highly valuable in terms of getting into other spaces. You know, I did that and then I got into speed South by Southwest and have a number of other, you know, sort of doors that have opened from that. It's always a little bit hard to track the the direct value of it because it's a little harder to measure, but definitely a really valuable thing for us. And in your fundraising journey so far, what have you learned along the way? So many things. I guess I'll I'll just say a couple and then feel free to push me in, in any direction here, Brett. But I think that one of them is 
I really felt like a complete outsider in the funding space. I started with basically zero VC network. I really was, all my friends and all my network were people in climate and not people in climate tech or in climate VC. And it took me about nine months to raise our pre-seed round, um, which was a $600,000 round that, you know, we really sort of scrapped together and I think the the biggest learning there is that it was about getting reps and it was also about, you know, following some of these things that are fairly intuitive, but really listening well, really trying to understand feedback and also spending a lot of time. And I think this is is very true in fundraising and very true generally, but it's the old adage of you ask for advice and you get money, you ask for money and you get advice. And I think approaching, you know, especially a first fundraise for me as, you know, asking for advice on, hey, how can we position this better? You know, how do you think we could be, you know, focusing on this strategically really translated into a lot of learning that was very important because obviously we needed it. So that was, that's one big thing. I would say a second bucket that I've really learned is, and I think a lot of great founders talk about this in their fundraising, but it's doing a really good job of relationship building and also really understanding VCs, you know, making sure that you are building relationships with people you actually want to work with. And I think there's a lot of different tactical ways, which I try to do that and try to understand and approach conversations with people. But primarily it's try to really get to know them, try to get them to answer just as many questions as they're answering for you, but they have to be questions you actually care about um, in learning from them. Now, let's imagine that you were just starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? It's a great question. I think the number one piece of advice would be to triage really, really effectively. And I think that we all have a tendency as founders, um, maybe not everybody, maybe I'm uniquely afflicted in this, but to want to build everything. And there's great strength in that. They think there's greater strength in building in a stepwise manner where you're able to take something that will get you to the next level and see it all the way through and then actually step to the next level. And I think that that resulted in, for us, particularly in our first couple of years of being slower than we than we could have been if we were more diligent about committing to an idea and following through. We have we have a saying on our team now, which is don't do good things because we should only be doing great things. And so committing to a few bigger bets and seeing them all the way through, I think is the number one thing that I would say. Super useful. And final question for you here. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's that vision that you're building? Our vision is to make it easy for any large company that uses materials to be able to source them in a way that is carbon smart. So what that means for us is in a way that is good for the planet and actually good. So having um, an ultimate carbon storage footprint, you know, not having some net neutral or net positive, but actually storing carbon um, in the materials that they're sourcing being able to do that really easily. So a big part of what we built and what are continuing to build is making it a lot easier for folks in the built environment and in manufacturing to source materials um, really efficiently with price visibility and all the other components that go into that. And that ultimately in doing so, we're creating and sort of 
transforming how materials are sourced in a way that is something that still facilitates a global economy, but also really facilitates local economies in a much bigger way, reducing shipping burden, and then also just bringing jobs, uh, you know, back to so many American cities is is definitely a, a big part of our vision. I think the last thing that I would say that we think about a lot is, is sort of a, a deeper existential thought and and how we approach what we're building. But we just live in this world where so many things are optimized to be the same. You know, we are pushed to be the same as people. All of our products are exactly the same. And we really believe in sort of rethinking that and rethinking the uniqueness of products, the stories behind products. You know, when we all are in our houses, you know, we don't talk about something that's there that is just the same as everybody else. We talk about the thing that is unique or has a story. And we believe that there is an opportunity to scale that sort of fascination with story and with uniqueness to utilize waste streams in a totally different way, because it allows you to approach material instead of having both so much waste on the front end and ignoring all of the waste once it's already produced, because it's not exactly the same, you can rewrite that and actually value that in a much bigger way. So that's our bigger vision is to create products that people want to talk about and care about and will cherish in a way that is very different from how we do it today. Amazing. I love the vision. Well, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. If any founders or investors that are listening in want to get in touch or follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to send me an email, ben at cambiumcarbon.com. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on social at Save Carbon. So Carbon, <laughs> you know, not like carbon, but carbon. Not my best work, but hey, it's okay. <laughs> I love it. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to chat about what you're building, talk about ultra running, and you know, of course, share this awesome vision that you have. This has been a really fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it and wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision. And of course, best of luck in your race tomorrow. Thanks so much, Brett. Appreciate it. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.